So during this Easter season, we've been exploring readings from the Revised Common Lectionary in the Epistle of 1 John. And this might be a little new to some of us, but I think a strength of hewing to the lectionary is that we join with other Christians around the world reading the same things at the same time and having the good news proclaimed in our varied context through common text. So this seems... It's, I think especially important for churches like ours, which are small and located and don't have some of the obvious uh, like formal connections or organizational luxuries of like a denomination. It's nice to be on the same page with other folks, right? I also um, get a chance along with, with four of our folks who went, get to talk about our recent experience of connection and communion with friends from the Ecclesia Network at our national gathering this week in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. So you get a, a testimony and a report from some of the good work that's happening in other places. I couldn't help but think how important it is to bring you all in on this kind of work in this way, especially considering that this kind of mode of communicating like bringing a report and a testimony, both personal and theological, is a big part of the way that Christians have been formed around Scripture. Have you ever stopped to marvel at how strange it is when you open your Bibles, in particularly the New Testament, and you get past the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you get past Acts, and then basically the rest of the Bible are letters, like notes, from someone to someone or to someone's. Like there are reports uh, of partnership, They're really well-written ones, but just notes, personal notes. Uh, people like John, who wrote these, this letter, our text today, or like the Apostle Paul, they, they write this way or they get someone to write for them. They have secretaries sometimes. Uh, they write this way to send love to various church communities and even specific individuals. And so these letters, um, and most of the time we screen these out, we like blow by them when we read the, the personal names, but I talk about like people they've partnered with in the past in person or now that they partner with from a distance or they feature practical matters like how to collect a financial offering to help with the suffering poor in Jerusalem and they're going to, uh, go kind of church to church and gather this offering and, and bring it to this, this church. Um, and they feature reports from and to local communities. Probably most of these communities were pretty young. Like, the people in them were pretty young. Uh, I, I, I personally forget that Jesus was in his early 30s and, like, called a bunch of, um, like, uh, fishermen who that might have been like their first job, you know, like, um, but also pretty young because this church was so young. Even though it had uh, deep Jewish roots, they were figuring this stuff out on the fly. They were kind of carving out their own template for how to talk about Jesus, this crucified and resurrected one, as the Messiah connected to their faith. So these letters mention things like joy that someone like Paul has in seeing leaders develop. He talks about companions like Timothy and Titus or uh, women who are leading in the local church like Junia and Lydia. He even talks about formerly enslaved people that he's now using 
family words like brother and son, like Onesimus, if you read the book of Philemon. So letters like our first letter of John, they also feature beautiful theological explorations and expositions like little sermonettes. But it's always tied to what these little churches are experiencing and the encouragement that they need, the, the challenge they need sometimes to be who they are. So keep that in mind when you're reading that these aren't like theological treatises to pen down and dissect, but they're more like family-style meals of encouragement and challenge for an imperfect and beautiful local church family from a family member laboring in the gospel from somewhere else. That's what these are. Uh, I think that helps me uh, read this word and really love it. So the beginning of this third chapter of our letter deals with the past. You'll, you'll see uh, throughout here all the kind of tenses that are being operated in, and it starts with the past tense, reminding us, reminding the original community that read, calling them and calling us back to who we are. It says, we should be called God's children because that's what we are called God's children because that's what we are. So I'm reminded of something that uh, one of the main speakers at our national gathering, this guy named Bruxy Cavey, he said that in the New Testament, I think there's a picture of this guy. You can look up the verse on his tattoo to, to get the full effect of the irony and, and kind of understand this guy a little bit better. But he said the New Testament, there's an ongoing ministry of reminding. But that's most of what's going on, if we don't know what's going on, it's reminding us. This reminding is, is also the work of a prophet normally throughout, throughout our whole Bible. The prophet is always calling God's people back to the identity which they've too quickly and too easily fled from. So this prophetic work of reminding always comes from inside God's family. You think about this in your own families when, when you normally get together with a big, wide family. Most of the time together is spent remembering silly stories that, that often later get embellished. But uh, all of that reminding and remembering has to ser serves the function of reinforcing and, and pulling back to an identity, even as, as we might have strayed, even as we might have spread. This prophetic work always comes from inside God's family also because it's never mere critique or criticism being thrown from the outside. It's, it's always a warning, a call to faithfulness, a call to repentance and renewal from the inside, even when they're hard words. Like, for instance, like Malachi 4, and this is, this is the last book of your Old Testament, kind of, kind of, hanging in the air for centuries of messianic hope until uh, the, the arrival of Jesus. And, and there's some hard words in Malachi 4, but there's also some beautiful images here. It says, look, the day is coming, burning like an oven. All the arrogant ones and those doing evil will become straw. The coming day will burn them, says the Lord of he heavenly forces, leaving them neither root nor branch. But... Prophets always have like a interruptive conjunction. They say, but the, 
the sun of righteousness will rise on those revering my name. Healing will be in its wings, so you may go forth and jump like calves in the stall. Remember the instruction from Moses, my servant, to whom I gave instruction and rules for all of Israel at Horeb. Remember the instruction. There's a reminding. So I'm sending Elijah the prophet. The prophet reminds, before the great and terrifying day of the Lord arrives, turn the hearts of the parents to their children in the hearts of children to their parents. Otherwise, I'll come and curse the land. Parents to their children and children to their parents. And then there's an otherwise again. Even that allusion to Moses in here at Horeb, which is also called Sinai, it starts with a remembering. Those Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy 5 or Exodus 20, we so often forget that that's not a numbered list. In our Bible, um, we're used to seeing numbers, every verse is numbered, and we're used to talking about the Ten Commandments like with Roman numerals, you know? But that's not a numbered list. It instead starts with an important reminder. It says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You must have no gods before me, etc. Brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and I think implied there is and brought you into a new household. So these are the house rules. Act this way because you're in covenant with me. I rescued you and made you part of my family, and it's a family of purpose, and a family of belonging, and it's a family set apart from all the other families that you've known. I think this is also kind of the shape, it's really subtle, of the plot line of Jesus' story of the prodigal son that we all know in Luke 15. It's the, the third parable of a group of lost things. There's a lost coin that the woman searches everywhere and turns everything up and finds and rejoices. There's a lost sheep that the shepherd leaves in 99 and goes and goes and goes and brings back and, and rejoices. And then there's a lost son, a, a dearly loved son who takes his inheritance early and goes into the far country to do some crazy things and basically make himself not a son. By taking that inheritance early, he's telling his dad, I'm not going to wait for you to die. I'm not going to wait to not have a dad. I'm going to take that bargain now. I've made a calculated risk here, and I'm going to go. So he goes as one who used to be a son and who's no longer a son, and that goes really bad, and he winds up being a servant. Um, servants have obligations, and they don't have the same sort of rights and um, inheritance that a, a family member has, and it goes so bad that he kind of goes back with his tail between his legs and said, I'd rather be a servant in my father's house than what I am now, whatever that is, because at least I'd eat better. Like the servants eat, I'm eating pig slop here. So then he goes back, and the father, this amazing, lavish father runs down the road in this undignified manner in order to make him a son and clothe him like a son with a robe and a ring and shoes and brings him in the household to have a feast. And, and all of that is, is saying, no, servant, you're crazy. You're my son. You've been my son, and I'm going to call you what you already were. I'm going to re-son you. And then there's this really ominous ending to that parable because it talks about the older brother who's kind of standing off 
uh, like us older brothers do, and, and like kind of mad that this great stuff is happening to this awful guy who said, I'm done with my family. And so we're kind of left in this tension of we've seen the father re-son this prodigal, and really prodigal means excessive and graceful, so I think the father is the prodigal one here. We've seen the father re-son this guy. Now we're wondering, and we're left to wonder if it's going to happen, we're left to wonder if we're the older brother, if we're capable of doing this too, of re-brothering this lost one, of being like the woman and the shepherd and rejoicing over the finding of this lost one. In so many ways, the past reminds us of our identities, of who we are because of who we've been called and who we've been made or sometimes remade, sometimes remade multiple times. And then it, that catapults us into the future, who we've been and who we've been called, catapults us into the future. First John continues, says, because the world didn't recognize him, it doesn't recognize us. This is a really weird part of this letter, right? It says, dear friends, now we are God's children and it hasn't yet appeared what we will be. We know that when he appears, we'll be like him because we'll see him as he is. I can't help but think in that bad recognition, people not recognizing us and maybe we don't recognize ourselves when we look in the mirror. I can't help but, but think about how when Jesus resurrected from the dead, no one recognized him. The people he'd been spending time with, uh, traveling around, healing, proclaiming good news, doing all those things in Isaiah 61 that, that we get so excited about at Oak Church because that's our namesake. He's doing all those things. He re he raises, he's raised by the Spirit from the dead, and no one recognizes him. It's so awful and anticlimactic if you're Jesus. In Luke's telling of the good news, that Jesus walks about eight miles down the road to Emmaus with James and John, and they're like talking about theology, discussing detailed points about how to read the Old Testament. Um, they're like, well, aren't you sad? Don't you know what just happened? That guy died. And he's like, yeah, he did. And, and, and like they're trying to make sense of this traumatic event of not just a promising political or re religious figure of being executed, but also like that was their friend. Like, this is post traumatic stress happening on this road. Maybe that's what closed their eyes. They only opened them. They were only able to recognize that their hearts burned within them when they sat around a campfire and Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it and gave it to them. Their time around the table opened up space for their eyes to be opened for them to see the Jesus who had been there all along. The table opened up space for them to gain insight about the future because a new prototype of human being was standing before them and they'd never seen resurrection before. They didn't know what they were looking for, but now they've seen it and they've recognized it. Something similar happens in John's gospel on Easter Sunday when Mary I don't know what Mary was really doing. Like coming to spruce up the graveside or maybe attend to Jesus' prepared and buried body. But upon encountering this gaping hole at the entrance of Jesus' tomb, she meets but doesn't recognize Jesus. 
And this is a brilliantly ironic twist. She assumes that Jesus is the gardener. This is one of those moments where you accidentally get the answer right, you know, like despite yourself. Because, like, think about, like, Isaiah 55 that, that, <clears throat> that Debbie talked about. It says, instead of a thorn bush shall come up a juniper. Instead of a briar shall come up a myrtle. Or, or flash forward to the vision of redemption and renewal um, in Revelation 22. We start to see that re- redemption and renewal require a lot of landscaping, Right? <laughs> Because Revelation 22 says, on either side of the river is the tree of life with 12 kinds of fruit producing its fruit each month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of nations, all of the nations, all of the people. Nothing a curse will be there anymore. Perhaps Jesus' most important work is the surprising work of turning a blighted landscape into a verdant garden. And Mary accidentally got that right by calling him the gardener. Maybe this, this turning into a verdant garden isn't just some like fantastic return to Eden's remote paradise, but it's actually like a garden city that comes down, and that's when we pray on earth as it is in heaven, and they, they, they become one. That's what's happening there. This features a healed creation and a healed ability for humanity to live together under the rightful and gracious lordship of Jesus. So we've been running around in a world that doesn't seem like God is in charge and doesn't seem like Jesus is Lord, but it'll become clear we'll get to see. Or the same might be said for Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus. Perhaps in times like these, it's really a brilliantly hopeful thing to remember that repentance and renewal can happen in an event involving this place in Syria. But Paul continues down the road, and he's met by a blinding light. Paul was not singing Marvelous Light. He was not so excited about this, because he was knocked off his horse. And he encounters this voice of the risen Jesus, whom he never met, but probably wouldn't have recognized if he had. Because at that point, Paul, his whole life was about guarding Torah, guarding the law, and systematically and violently trying to eliminate these heretic, deviant followers of someone who couldn't possibly have been the Messiah in his understanding. Who, this Jesus had to have been a sham, since he apparently met his end. But before, so Paul's eyes are blinded by this light, he's knocked down, and before they're opened, it didn't happen fast, before they're opened, Paul's eyes were scabbed over and scaled over, And he was thrust right into the hesitant but open arms of the very community that he was trying to kill. Like, that's a crazy part of Acts when he's, you know, they just have this, like, terrorist Paul that they're nursing back to health. And everyone's like, is he for real or is this, like, a trap, you know? This is the very community that then he would give his whole life towards its health and its maturity and its flourishing and its spread. All of this sort of future was captured this week at our gathering by my friend Danny Prada, who's a pastor in South Florida of a young church. And he did a workshop with uh, Pastor Mia Chang. That's Danny and his wife. Um, He did a workshop with a pastor in Princeton, New Jersey, named Mia Chang on multi-ethnic churches. And Danny quoted 
uh, Jurgen Moltmann by saying, we are an eschatological people. He said, we're called to create a picture of God's dream in the present. What God dreams, the, the nations worshiping him around the throne, saying, holy, 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 that's to happen here and now in real places ahead of time. Like, now that we are God's children, uh, it hasn't yet appeared what we will be, is, is what First John, how First John 3 says. We are God's children, it hasn't yet appeared what we will be. But we do it anyways. We anticipate, we get ahead of that. We lunge into this present future by partnering. I, I think we do it by partnering across cultures and against our own interest. Another pastor, I don't have a slide of his picture, but the pastor of a new church to the network that just joined from Ocala, Florida, which is right down the road from where I went to college, and Ocala is backwoods, Florida. His nickname is Slow Cala, right? And he told a story about his church, which is about the same size and kind of makeup of our church, after Charlottesville being so disturbed at the scene of Charlottesville that they knew they had to do something. They didn't really know what they had to do. And so they began like a humble approach in partnering with a historic black church uh, just across downtown. They're in downtown. This church is downtown. And that partnership took the form and is continuing to take the form of them serving. Uh, Pastor Brad talked about how um, they realized that the oldest deacon for this church that they're partnering with is in his mid-90s. And they have this beautiful old building, um, probably even more beautiful than this beautiful building, and they can't even clean it because they're so old. But, so they have this young congregation that's eager and wants to help. And so they're cleaning their building as, as, as a, one way that they're serving, and they're learning from them, asking good questions, and hanging around long enough to listen, and they're eating together. Pastor Brad talked about all the looks they've been getting when all these young white people in the middle of Ocala, Florida are tabling across from elderly black folks. He said uh, this is their embodied protest to the hate and evil that manifests itself in, in Charlottesville. Because our world lacks, and we often lack, the kind of vocabulary and imagination for what this new, unified, diverse humanity should look like. Our New Testaments don't lack that, that vocabulary, though. Ephesians 2 says, remember, it starts with the word remember. It's great. It says, remember, at that time you were separated from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and the foreigners to the covenants of the promise. You were without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. He has made the two groups one and destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law and its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and he preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. And through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. 
Our New Testaments have great vocabulary for what's going on with this. And, and you see that movement from remember when to now this is what you are. So finally, all this past and future must meet in the present. Must meet in the present. Must, even if we're uncomfortable or confused, find its way into our everyday lives. That's why 1 John 3, 7 can say, little children, and I think that's so sweet, but maybe a little condescending. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The person who practices righteousness is righteous in the same way that Jesus is righteous. We're being tenderly entreated like little children learning this stuff for the first time. We're, we're given training wheels to help us gain confidence. We're given grace to fall off our bikes and skin our knees. And we're even kind of given a hand under the back of our seat that knows when to push and when to hold on, right? And we're told to practice righteousness. Because that's the only way to be righteous, is to practice righteousness. Not because we have the power to make ourselves right. That's what that word, it, for many of us, it carries like a courtroom verdict resonance, or maybe like a balance sheet, like debits and credits. And now we've been made right because our credits are better than our debits. That word, it's a Greek word, dikaiosine, uh, is a, it's like a right-making, rectifying, active, fixing word. Like, like if this stool is turned over, to be made right is to turn it up. Like that has been made righteous, right? Or like if a turtle's on its back, you're going to turn the turtle over, right? Because stools can't be like essentially a stool if it's lying on its side and a turtle's going to die if you leave it on its back. That's what righteousness is. That's what righteousness does. Neither the stool or the turtle are capable or responsible for the very thing they need in this world. But both need to stay upright to live into and embrace their essence and their purpose. Another one of the workshops at the gathering was on communicating the gospel. And I was treated to this sort of like beta test from our friends Jeff and Sid Holsclaw. Jeff's a professor and Sid is an amazing pastor at Life of the Vine in Chicago. They're trying to come up with this new kind of diagram or paradigm to visually display the good news. So like many of us have grown up with four spiritual laws or a bridge diagram and there's all these kind of mechanisms and some of them are good and some of them communicate uh, less. But they're trying to, to figure out a new tool because uh, in Sid's words, the old tools were really visually good at depicting what we're saved from. Normally the bridge, we're saved from whatever's down here, and there's maybe fire. Or like what we're saved by, and like the cross, it's really cool because the cross connects the canyon, and, but there's still the upper cross beam that you have to climb over. Um, what we're saved by, but they're terrible at talking about what we're saved for. Like, what do you do once you kind of get over the canyon? Our passage in 1 John is really clear. Because we've been called what we already are, loved children of a lavish father. 
So we can live into the future that's been paved for us by the crucified and resurrected Jesus. We've also been given the Spirit, so we don't, like that stool, have to turn ourselves upright. We're, we're given everything we need. Our dead hearts are made flesh so that they can respond and beat, and we can grow and live. And this has to happen in the present. Like, slowly, steadily, like, painfully slowly, like, drip by drip, slowly, until all of our drops kind of form together into a slow stream that cuts a canyon as we practice righteousness together. As we take up our crosses daily and follow Jesus in hard things. And we do that together and we mess up and we say sorry and we extend Christ's forgiveness when, when we say sorry. And we don't, we don't do that in a vacuum and we don't do that privately. We don't do that based out of shame because we're in the light. And then we can start to imagine and live and heal and obey and practice resurrection together. It's the vision.